Asia-Pacific currents. News and labour issues from the Asia-Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. On Community Radio 3CR. Workers of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Link. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents for another Saturday morning here on Community Radio 3CR. It is the 17th of September. I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm James Barry. We're taking you through to 9.30 this morning. In the second part of the show, we're going to be speaking with Nick McClellan about the Pacific Island nations and some of their criticisms of Australia in relation to our new yet insufficient environment direction. So we're going to be doing that in the second part of the show. But of course, Asia Pacific Currents is brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. If you want to keep in touch with us or learn more about us, you can find us on the web, all the w's.aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter, so look us up on those social media platforms. But first up, news from around the region. Beginning in the Caucasus. Uh, Azerbaijan has invaded Armenia. On Tuesday at midnight, Azerbaijan began shelling both military and civilian positions inside Armenia in the largest mobilisation since the 2020 war. The former Soviet republics of Armenia and Azerbaijan have fought several wars over disputed territory since 1988, with Armenia once occupying 20% of Azerbaijan's territory for much of the past 30 years. However, this week's actions mark an escalation in the conflict, as Azerbaijan, which won back most of their territory in 2020, now claims much of southern Armenia as a means of creating a land bridge between the main part of Azerbaijan and the enclave of Nakhchivan. Azerbaijan is believed to be taking advantage of events in Ukraine and the European complacence to jeopardise Azerbaijan and the or jeopardise relations with Azerbaijan and access to their energy markets, with now Russia turning off the gas Azerbaijan as an alternative. And this is part of the timing of the current invasion. So far, Azerbaijan has pushed five kilometres into Armenia with several hundred military casualties on both sides. And a newspaper has been closed down in the UAE over an article on petrol prices. In a continuation of our coverage of the campaign against journalists in the Asia-Pacific, this week the United Arab Emirates closed the Dubai-based newspaper El Royia. How do I pronounce that? El Royia. Royia. And sacked all of its journalists. The closure is believed to be punishment for an article published over the summer which highlighted how citizens were struggling with high fuel prices in the petroleum-producing Gulf state. Originally, the article passed the UAE strict censorship, but, with, but within days of publication, Roeya's edit, editorial staff were detained and interrogated before the newspaper was shut down and staff sacked. The newspaper's publisher, Abu Dhabi-based International Media Investments, claims that the closure was to make way for a new online publication, CCN Arabic Business. However, the article coincided with the removal of fuel subsidies in the UAE, leading to a rapid rise in petrol prices. The article went viral in the UAE before being deleted only hours after publication. To Malaysia now, where Goodyear Malaysia has settled out of court with workers. Goodyear Malaysia this week reached an agreement with workers to end a three-year-long dispute over wrongful deductions and unlawful overtime. 
184 mostly migrant workers from India, Nepal and Myanmar had launched action against Goodyear over 5 million ringgit, or 1.7 million Australian dollars, of unpaid wages. Many of these workers were also subject to debt bondage to recruitment agents in their home countries, and while the settlement is undisclosed, sources claim that Goodyear had paid compensation to workers for these fees and quietly ceased partnerships with the human resources services involved. A court ruling in 2021 in favour of the workers, or court ruled in 2021 in favour of the workers, although Goodyear had appealed this until this week. It's understood that while the workers have been compensated, much of their compensation will be lost in paying legal fees. And our continuing coverage of the Kiribati court crisis continues. On Friday, the government of Kiribati stated that they will appoint a new Chief Justice soon after the firing of Chief Justice Bill Hastings for preventing the government from deporting High Court Judge David Lamborn in August. Furthermore, Kiribati lacks any judges at the magistrate's level, as the government also suspended three other judges for upholding Hastings' decision in the Court of Appeal. Lamborn, whose original sacking sparked the other sackings, is an Australian married to Kiribati opposition leader Tessie Edia Lamborn, leading to accusations that the decision by the Taneti Mamua administration was politically motivated. The 2020 decision by the current government to cut ties with Taiwan and build ties with Beijing is at the centre of the political difference between the government and opposition, meaning this is another case of US-China competition playing out in the Pacific. And to Myanmar now, where unions are lobbying against the UN recognition of the junta. The Building and Woodworkers International, or BWI, has joined a chorus of voices opposed to the UN recognising the junta as the representative government of Myanmar in the United Nations General Assembly. Opponents to this move, which has been rumoured to have been on the table since at least July 2021, argue that recognising the junta will only embolden them to commit more atrocities, with four activists executed this year, the first such executions in Myanmar for several decades, and another 41 on death row. The BWI have joined in solidarity with other workers' voices to lobby the UN to maintain recognition of Myanmar's pre-coup government and to adopt punitive members against the junta to prosecute them for their crimes. And a Palestinian has been elected to be the head of the Arab Confederation of Trade Unions. Palestinian labour activist Shahid Saeed was elected the president of the Arab Confederation of Trade Unions at the organisation's third general conference held in Oran, Algeria. Observers have cited Saeed's election as important in keeping Palestinian rights at the forefront of one of the world's largest labour confederations and providing the necessary avenue to pressure the Arab League to not ignore the plight of the Palestinians. Saeed, who is the Secretary-General of the Federation of Palestinian Trade Unions, said in his speech, Since the beginning of this year, 50 Palestinian workers have died in the Israeli labour market, including those who were killed by live bullets at military checkpoints or while they were fishing in the Gaza Sea or when they were crossing the openings of the settlement separation wall while heading to 1948-occupied Palestine to seek work. 
Said also decried the racial discrimination against Palestinians that leads to unsafe work environments and being cheated on wages in Israeli workplaces. A very significant development there um, at the international labour movement level. It is nine minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. You're listening to Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go to some community announcements and then our feature interview for the morning with Nick McClellan. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. the single most important film on the Aboriginal political struggle in the last 50 years. Ningla Anna is the inside story of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy, a gripping first-hand account of an iconic protest action and the young radicals who took control and demanded justice. Rediscover this iconic documentary and a momentous period for First Nations activism in this brand new restoration. Screening Cinema Nova, Carlton, from Friday the 30th of September to Sunday the 2nd of October. A 3CR supporter. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Come to me sweetly this love of great pain. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR. This is Asia Pacific Currents. I'm Giselle Hanna and I'm with James Barry in the studio. And our next guest is Nick McClellan, our what I like to call our resident Pacific expert. Um, Of course, many of you will be following the developments of the new Australian government's approach to the international community on environmental issues, which has been broadly welcomed across the the world. But leaders in the Pacific Islands are saying and fearing that Australia's policies don't go far enough. So, Nick McClellan, welcome to the show to discuss this issue. Good morning, Giselle. Thanks for having me on. I guess where to start? I mean, one of the main issues I think that um, Australia's being criticised for is its failure, our failure, to commit to no new coal, gas and oil projects. Why is this the main concern for Pacific Islands? Well, when Prime Minister Albanese went to the Pacific Islands Forum in July, he got a relatively warm welcome. 
Um, I think people were, were aware that Labor's made a commitment to reduce emissions by 2030. That's greater than the previous pledge from Scott Morrison. Um, but it's clear that the people were, were also telling Prime Minister Albanese and Senator Penny Wong that a lot more needs to be done. And we've seen that over the last week. We've had members of a group called Pacific Elders Voice touring Australia and New Zealand. These are former presidents and prime ministers who are now retired but still active politically in the, in the region. And so the former president of Kiribati, Anoti Tong, and the former prime minister, uh, president of uh, Palau, Micronesian country up in the northern Pacific, Tommy Rangmangasau Jr., both have been in Canberra lobbying politicians, speaking out. And they had some pretty clear calls that are quite challenging for the Labor Party. They were very critical that Australia has announced the opening up of new oil and gas exploration fields because they've been calling for no new fossil fuel initiatives as countries make the transition away from the energy systems that they've got. There's a recognition that that's going to take time in some cases, but the obvious point is you shouldn't be adding more oil and gas into the system at the same time that you're supposed to be transitioning away from it. So Tong and uh, Romangel Sal both spoke very critically about Australian policy, um, where uh, the resources minister has just opened up a whole lot of new oil and gas exploration, um, and that's uh, one one big gap. The other, there are two other core concerns. One is the level of um, uh, fossil fuel subsidies. You know, massive multi-billion-dollar subsidies are given to fossil fuel industries. Um, that have been baked into the energy system for a long time. And the obvious call is that those resources be shifted away from oil and gas companies uh, towards renewable energy. And so, um, uh, you know, you had um, uh, really strong statements. Um, Anote Tong and uh, Ramingasau wrote in the, in the paper the other day, every announcement for new oil and gas exploration or export feels like a nail in the coffin for the survival of our lands, our people, and our culture. So it's clear that, you know, people welcome the change of government. They're happy to see the back of Scott Morrison because of the intransigence um, there. Um, and so there's a real pressure to do more. Uh, global uh, geopolitical concerns are also deeply affecting the Pacific right now, and uh, the Pacific voices that are speaking about them are, have a lot of criticism for Australia in particular, uh, particularly the AUKUS arrangement of, of Australia, the UK and the US, the new alliance against China, and nuclear submarines. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the Pacific Island leaders' response uh, to this, both from an environmental and a security perspective, with nuclear subs? When AUKUS was first announced in September last year, there was a bit of a muted response. People didn't come out immediately to attack it because they were trying to get a sense of, of what's involved. But uh, since that time, there's been a lot more outspoken criticism of the decision for Australia to develop nuclear submarines in partnership with the, the Brits and the Americans. Um, there's a very strong and deep anti-nuclear sentiment in the Pacific Islands, and part of that is the legacy of nuclear testing um, that's gone on across the region during the Cold War, the last Cold War, um, by uh, Britain, France and the United States. Um, more than 315 nuclear tests, both in the atmosphere and underground, uh, were conducted across the Pacific. There's a whole series of other nuclear experiments, and that left real sacrifice zones across the region 
and even in Australia. This is the 70th anniversary of the first uh, nuclear test conducted by Britain in Australia at the Montebello Islands um, in coming up next month in October. And then um, uh, Britain continued testing for another five years at uh, Maralinga at MU Field in South Australia on the land of the Anungu people. So that anti-nuclear sentiment is really deep across the region simply because there hasn't been proper clean-up compensation reparations for, you know, 50 years of nuclear testing at 10 sites across the region. And so for Australia to be working with the United States and Britain, two of the three countries that tested nuclear weapons, to develop new nuclear systems um, is a bit of a slap in the face. And so we've seen leaders like... Um, um, former president of Kiribati, uh, Teboro Rosito, who's now uh, ambassador to the United Nations for Kiribati, speaking out very strongly against um, um, uh, the nuclear non-proliferation issues related to the submarine purchase. And that's not just the Pacific Islands. Other neighbours, particularly Indonesia and Malaysia, have been quite outspoken that uh, Australia, by purchasing nuclear submarines as a non-nuclear power, will uh, be breaching provisions of the NPT uh, review treaty. Um, continuing with the issues to do with nuclear, with, uh, well, nuclear issues, Japan uh, recently has announced that they're going to dump the Fukushima nuclear plant that was destroyed during the 2011 earthquake into the Pacific Ocean, which has outraged a number of Pacific leaders who have cited, much like you mentioned earlier, cultural reasons as well as environmental reasons, given the the importance of the sea to Pacific Islander identity uh, for their opposition to this. Um, can you talk a little bit about what Japan's plans are and what problems this is for the Pacific? Yeah, Japan's got a serious problem because the 2011 accident at the Fukushima nuclear plant has caused a meltdown of the internal reactor core and it's going to cost tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to clean it up. Uh, that's going to take some decades, and while that's happening, they have to keep the molten uh, fuel rods cool, and so they're running water through the reactors, uh, two of the three reactors uh, all the time, to keep the, the uh, fusion uh, cool. That water is contaminated with radionuclides, um, um, which are then, at the moment, stored in tanks at the Fukushima site in uh, Japan. Um, those tanks are just filling up with water that's contaminated with um, both high-level and low-level radioactive uh, nuclides. And um, as the cost of storing it and the difficulty of storing it uh, um, is there, Japan's looking for solutions. They've come up with a really stupid solution, which is to build a massive pipe out into the ocean and just start pumping this water into the ocean um, starting next year. It's caused enormous anger um, in countries, uh, once again, not just in the Pacific, but China, uh, South Korea, other Japanese neighbours. But the Japanese uh, have really angered Pacific Island leaders and communities because of the potential threats to fishing. Um, there's a scientific debate about how much radioactivity will come out into the ocean, but even the perception that fisheries are going to be affected will cause enormous economic damage for a lot of countries that are reliant on fisheries. So the real anger at, at Japan um, and uh, uh, the Pacific Islands Forum, the main regional organisation, appointed an expert panel of scientists who've just um, released, uh, just prepared a memo that they've given to the forum. It's scathing about the failure of Japan to do proper testing. There's a whole lot of unknowables, but they've uh, Japan's talked that the main um, contamination is tritium, which they say will dissolve in the vast Pacific Ocean. But um, 
there's 64 contaminants that have been found in the data that the scientists have, have, have found. And, um, you know, Japan hasn't properly sampled what they're going to be putting into the ocean. So once again, this is an enormous um, anger related to environmental challenges. So we've had the question about climate change. We've had the question about, you know, ongoing investment in fossil fuels, the failure of governments to do clean-up around nuclear mess, be it nuclear testing or the nuclear reactor disasters. And this comes at a time when there's a call for resources to be put into adaptation and what's called loss and damage for climate change. You know, Pacific governments want resources put into uh, dealing with the adverse effects of climate change so people can adapt to adverse effects of climate change or they can deal with the, the consequences that aren't adaptable to. And, you know, just as we've seen with floods in, in, in Pakistan, with the drought in China, um, Pacific countries can get hammered. Uh, the 2015 cyclone Winston that hit Fiji cost $2 billion Fijian dollars for clean-up afterwards, $2 billion for clean-up and damages um, to agriculture, to schools, to roads, to power grids and so on. Um, you know, there's many more extreme weather events like that. And um, small developing countries are saying we need assistance from big powers like Australia. And so they're looking to Australia's budget, which is coming up next month, uh, not only to address the concerns of working people in Australia, but also to assist some of the poorest people in the world who are our neighbours. And there's a real call for action uh, that the Labor government should step up and make stronger commitments to climate finance uh, to deal with these effects. I mean, absolutely, the Australian government should uh, should stump up. Um, but the, the, the issue is that the Australian government, the Labor government, is just as much a slave to the forces of capitalism, the big um, capitalist uh, donors to their election fund, etc. So, I mean, the reality is the Australian government isn't going to do that. What, what do these Pacific Island nation leaders have at their disposal? What is their leverage to actually apply pressure on not just Australia, but Japan, as you described in great detail, all of these other uh, massive economies in, in the region that they can't necessarily compete with? What is their leverage to apply um, pressure that can't be ignored? I mean, people in Australia, you know, in the environment movement and and so on, often portray Pacific Islanders as weak and victims, that they're drowning, you know, and so on. It's the exact opposite, that Pacific governments and Pacific civil society, church networks, trade unions and so on, have very strong policies and, and, and actions, and they're not sitting around. And the Pacific has long used its David versus Goliath, you know, status... Um, on the global stage at negotiations um, around uh, the climate cops every year, the Conference of the Parties. Um, the Pacific has leveraged their role within the United Nations um, to step around traditional partners like Australia and Japan uh, to reach out to non-aligned countries, to the G77 plus China block, which is the developing world block within the UN. And so Pacific Island countries joined the Asia group within uh, the UN system and have been rewarded with many committee positions and so on. And so, for example, the UN Special Envoy on the Ocean is um, uh, Peter Thompson, Fiji's former ambassador to the United Nations. So he's representing Antonio Guterres on oceans policy around the world. Uh, the former um, head of the UN Human Rights Commission was a Fijian diplomat. Uh, so there's some action at that level. More than that, um, uh, there's a lot of 
work being done simply because there are alternatives. Historically, um, both colonial and post-colonial Pacific countries were reliant on, um, you know, major Western powers, United States, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, France to a certain extent. Now there are many alternatives, and so Pacific countries are reaching out to other partners, be they large ones like China or uh, uh, the European Union, or smaller niche partners, say, like Cuba. Um, Cuba's doing enormous amounts of medical training in the Pacific Islands, for example. Hundreds of people have gone to Havana and other cities in Cuba for preventative health medical training and primary health care training. Um, a lot more doctors have been trained by Cuba than Australia in recent years. Mm. Um, and, you know, in the 20th century, that would be sort of taboo. The Cubans would be seen as a cat's paw of Russian imperialism. Now country's pretty pragmatic because the stakes are very high, be it around the threat of nuclear uh, destruction, be it around the climate emergency, be it around the poverty and development challenges, particularly after the pandemic, which hit a lot of small island states pretty hard. Well, Nick, thank you so, so much for your time. It's a, uh, an ongoing conversation that we're going to have about the, um, situate, well, the environmental situation for Pacific Islands, but obviously the broader geopolitical issues impacting the region. Thanks, thanks very much for your time this morning. Thanks a lot. Happy to speak to you. Nick McClellan, our resident Pacific Island expert, speaking about, well, the failings of the Albanese government to actually deal with and tackle environmental issues and the broader um, economic and uh, human impact that's having on the region. It's 26 minutes past nine o'clock here on Community Radio 3CR. Some community announcements. The United Nations International Day of Peace is being marked with a rally on Sunday the 18th of September, 12pm at the State Library in Melbourne. The theme of the rally is Truth, Not War. It's inspired by these words of Julian Assange. If wars can be started by lies, peace can be started by truth. This will be a broad-based, inclusive, colourful and peaceful rally with speeches and music for peace. Joining to show your opposition to AUKUS and the acquisition of nuclear submarines. Take real climate action that recognises the massive emissions caused by wars and arms build-up and to march for truth and press freedom. To drop the prosecution of peacemakers like WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange. For more details, go to Melbourne for Assange on Facebook. Melbourne for Assange are free CR supporters. There is another rally coming up next week that I think many of you will be pleased to hear the announcement of. There's going to be a, a rally on the 22nd of September, the day, the public holiday that has been set aside to mourn the, the Queen. It is an abolish the monarchy rally organised by the warriors of the Aboriginal resistance and some uh, other activists uh, around and associated with the warriors of the Aboriginal resistance. Thursday, September 22nd at 1.30pm at Birrarungma. So Birrarungma is the park across the road from the Art Centre uh, on the other side of Federation Square off on St Kilda Road. 
Um, it's a, abolish the monarchy, stop Aboriginal deaths in custody and return our land. Uh, the slogans for that rally will be marching through the city and up to Parliament Station. Get along to that rally. We will be, 3CR will be making uh, an announcement so that it can roll over the weekend and the next week if you've missed the details that I've just read out. So make sure you get along to that demo as well. But James, that does bring us to the end of another Asia Pacific Currents. Thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll be back next Saturday from 9 o'clock with more news and current affairs from the Asia Pacific region. But that's all from me, Giselle Hanna. And me, James Barry.